Hello and welcome. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Daniel Hogan is in the studio. Our guest today is Leslie A. Goldman, and she is a partner and co-founder at the Artemis Fund. In just a moment, Leslie is going to be with us and tell us all about what she is up to. Remember that you can find us on social media. Uh, we usually post our up-and-coming programs, and you can also find us at our website, hearts.radio.com, or on the KBMF 102.5 website, butamericaradio.org. In just a moment, Leslie will be with us. This is Heartstock. Thanks for listening. You're listening to Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. And today our guest is Leslie A. Goldman. She's a general partner and co-founder at the Artemis Fund. Hi, Leslie. Hello. Thank you so much for being our guest on Heartstock and welcome. Well, thank you for having me. Delighted to be here. Indeed. And uh, what is the Artemis Fund and, and what do you do there? Sure. Um, so I'm one of the, as you mentioned, one of the co-founders and general partners of the Artemis Fund. Uh, we're based in Houston, Texas. I founded the fund with two partners, Diana Murakovskaya and Stephanie Campbell. Um, the Artemis Fund is a seed stage venture capital fund. We invest in tech-enabled, female-founded, and led companies in fintech, e-commerce, and care tech. And all of our companies diversify wealth creation and address financial inclusion on some level. And so our investments expand and modernize access to quote unquote wealth as we define it, the founders who ourselves have overcome obstacles. To us, wealth is financial stability and freedom. It's control of your time and schedule. It's the freedom to pursue your professional goals without sacrificing the health, the safety, the happiness of your family. It's a choice to spend your wealth on the goods and services that match your values. So, so far we have 12 companies in fund one and we will have 15 and we've just launched our fund two raise and we will raise another 50 million. So that's what we do. I can, I can go on to say what uh, our mission is as well. I would love to delve into that, but let's talk about Leslie just for a moment first. Do you consider yourself an angel investor or just a female VC? What, what do you call yourself and how did you get into this? Well, that's an interesting question because <laughs> I am both an angel investor and a VC. Mm -hmm. I got into it a very circuitous way. It's, I did not start in finance. I actually started in opera uh, when I was younger. That's what I thought I was going to pursue. So I, I studied opera. And one of the things that has always struck me throughout my life is that I, first of all, on stage was so much more self-conscious as a woman on stage. Um, I had to worry about how I looked, my appearance. It wasn't just about the sound of my voice, how I looked. I And I felt like the men weren't judged that way. Um, so it added so much to my nervousness that ultimately, and when you can't breathe, you can't sing, I gave up. So I went to law. 
<laughs> and uh, I thought my brain would give me a more level playing field. So, uh, well, before I went to law, I went for a master's degree in women's studies in Australia. And that was when I was really at the height of my soapbox, I feel. Uh, I had my first experience getting slapped on the behind out in public within a week of being there studying women's studies. Oh my! So as it happened, <laughs> it happened as I was talking to somebody about the gender bias that was rife in the country, and she was denying it. We were literally in a very heated conversation, and this guy comes over and he slaps me on the tush. <laughs> Needless to say, I did not have the best reaction. So from there, I went to law school, and I guess I really wanted to further prove my worth. This is all coming to how I got into investing mm -hmm. and, and why I'm so passionate about investing in women. So I felt I could compete with the guys if I did well in law school, if I landed a choice job, if I worked in a big law and became a general counsel. So I did all those things, but the glass ceiling in the company seemed resilient, a little too resilient. So Continued to look for how to change things for women. I went into recruiting, focused on diversifying the C-suite. So as I was doing all of this, I started angel investing because there are no, there are no boundaries when it comes to being able to put your money into, into something. If you have money, people will take it unless, you know, you can't get access to the deals. But I started angel investing and got invited to more and more angel rounds. Um, I was always interested in, in, in startups, in innovation. It keeps you relevant. It's exciting. I was also always interested in doing deals. I'm a deal junkie, always interested in learning, and then more and more passionate about empowering women. And you can do all those things when you're at the angel stage. So you can pick and cho choose what you do. So as I was recruiting, I was angel investing, but I saw company after company with all white male executive teams and boards saying that they wanted to diversify the team, the, the team or their boards, but they didn't understand how difficult it would be for them to really accept someone who didn't look like them. So you've got this top level where we're trying to break the ceiling, right, of these big companies. And then at the very, very beginning, beginning of the food chain, as I was angel investing, we had few women who were actually getting money. So if you don't have a lot of women at the bottom of the pipeline, they're not going to show up at the top. You know, they're not going to go to market and go public. You're not going to see fewer Mark Zuckerbergs or Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates. You're going to see, so far, it's only been 20 women, female CEO founders that have gone public. And I wanted to focus my life and my money and my time on the very, very beginning to get women the pipeline, angel investing. Yes. <laughs> and we've talked about this in several different programs, but I think it's also important to revisit this point. Aside from being kind of personally injurious and not being taken seriously as a woman, for society at large, for a planet at large, why is this so darn important? <laughs> That's exactly why it's so darn important, because we only, the venture capital community only spends, and you've probably said this on your other programs, 2.2% of all VC dollars go to female founders. In 2008, 2% of all venture capital dollars went to female founders. In 2021, according to PitchBook, 2% 
went to female founders. It's not moving. And their last year was $164 billion in VC funding. Why is that important? Because frankly, solving for the world's problems, whatever it is, the financial inclusion, sustainability, equity in the workplace, women's health issues, whatever it may be, solving for the world's problems requires inclusion of the other 50% of problem solvers. We, we have a different lens. We are not a carve out. We are not a special interest group. We see the world differently. We focus on community. We focus on family. We have to deal with family. We can't have babies in ovens, as my mother used to say. <laughs> she was very involved. She was very involved in the women's movement in the 60s. She was, uh, so she used to speak out about this on TV. I have tapes of her. We see so things so much differently than men do, and we're going to solve for different problems. And the problems that, that we're going to solve for need to be solved. Indeed. We've seen that, especially where, yeah, some, some very challenging times ahead. And I'm so glad to hear you say that and put it into some very thoughtful words once again for all of us all. Our very survival depends upon this. And I'm so glad that you brought up your mom because that was going to be my next question. Who were your influences that kind of shaped this very important worldview that you have? Yeah, obviously, my mother was a very, very strong influence. Uh, she was a scholar. She was a performing artist, and she was not afraid to speak out. And as I said, she was on TV. She was in the press talking about the women's movement and gender inequality in the 60s when it was, you know, <laughs> bubbling up, bra burning, all that kind of stuff was happening. And then she started her own theater company uh, when she saw Gap. It was extraordinarily successful. So she was an entrepreneur and it took a lot of time away from the family, which I may have slightly resented. But then I started joining her and I was, you know, in middle school. I remember working for her every night at the theater company. Just My father was an entrepreneur as well. Um, and he did, he, he, he was the one who kind of forced me to sort of read the New York Times every morning, little, learn a little about the corporate world. I only wish that he had forced me to learn a little bit more about finance. Uh, but I was very, very focused on opera at the time. For some reason, I just thought finance was not in my wheelhouse. I didn't have any role models until later in life when, again, my mother became a dedicated investor. Uh, and man, she is good. She was and she is good. She's uh, 81 years old now. But like everything she did, she gave it 100%. She did the research. She took classes. She learned everything about the public markets, about option trading, about equities, she would watch CNBC all day, and I developed that addiction as well, and that comes directly from her. So, I mean, clearly my parents are have been very, very influential. Where are your parents from, and where did you grow up? I mean, this I, I sense a beautiful love story here. <laughs> yes, my mother grew up in New York City, actually. She was an only child and um, was given all the opportunities, which was great. She went to Vassar, my, and this is how she met my dad. My dad grew up in Brookline, and he went to Harvard when, you know, there was a, there was a quota for Jews, <laughs> for Jewish people, <laughs> and his father went to Harvard. His, his mother went to Radcliffe. His uncle went to Harvard, so it was a long line of Harvard family members. He wanted to go to the University of Miami, 
because he wanted to play football, but they wouldn't let him. So he and she met at a Harvard Vassar function. That's how they met. Um, she decided she got a Fulbright scholar and went off to Europe because he wouldn't marry her right out of college. And so she said, okay, I'm going to Europe. But then he followed her and they eloped and they got married in France and Strasbourg uh, came back because her mother was beside herself and had another marriage here. And so that's how they met. I grew up in New York. So my father moved from Brookline, Massachusetts to New York. I went to school in Rye. I went to college in New Haven. So my younger life, I think I was pretty lucky. The only thing I was upset about is that I couldn't play in the NBA or the MLB or the NFL, <laughs> whatever sport I wanted. And then I, I went to Yale from there. I studied opera, as I said, um, and went to get a, a master's in Australia and a law degree in New York City at Fordham Law School. So I'm thinking about the arts and your time doing opera. Has that impact? I mean, I'm sure, you know, all the other incredible work that you've done to get where you are has been, um, you know, majorly helpful. How about opera? Yeah, so I think opera made me being on stage and singing and depending on having to depend on your body and your nerves and your breathing makes you incredibly resilient. So there were times in my, when I was studying, when I was younger, I would get on stage. I would be so self-conscious. I would be so nervous that nothing would come out. Nothing would come out of my mouth. And when that happens to you, you have to build resilience to get back up again. Mm. And I kept getting back up and getting back up. And you also, you also have to hear a lot of no's, a lot of no's, because some people will love your voice and some people won't. Ultimately, I ended up studying with the, uh, the, the most well-known opera singer of our time, Renee Fleming. And that, to this day, is probably one of my biggest accomplishments. Um, I did pick up opera later because I just stopped. At one point, I just stopped when I was 24 years old because I was tired of not being able to sort of control my destiny. I felt like I had to use my brain rather than my, you know, breasts. And uh, so, I mean, I, so I think it's helped me tremendously with resilience. And, and as I was saying, I came back to it, or I was starting to say, I came back to it about 15 years ago to conquer it. And I went into a competition after not singing for, you know, 20 some odd years. I went into a competition and I got second place in the competition and I was competing against other people who were in the music program, in the graduate program, where, who I was competing against. And I was so happy. I got through Juliet's Waltz and I think things really changed for me then. They really changed for me and allowed me, I think, to do what we're doing now, which is so hard to raise, to, uh, to raise a fund. And uh, so, yeah. Yeah, and I would love to talk about that here in just a moment. We're going to take our midpoint break. In just a moment, we shall be back with Leslie A. Goldman. This is Heartstock. Welcome 
Welcome back. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Today we are speaking with Leslie A. Goldman. She's the general partner and co-founder of Artemis Fund, the Artemis Fund. We were just talking about the challenges, just generally speaking, of raising a huge fund. And I mean, in my mind, it's it's gargantuan. What what was that like from the beginning, and how have you created so much success? I think you said you have 12 companies in the fund now. Is that right? We have almost 12 so far. We're about to ink our 12th, and we will have 15 total in fund one. Yep. And we're moving on to fund two. Another feat. Yes. How have you done this? <laughs> Through... Thousands of coffees and lunches, and first you reach out to your network. So the three of us uh, are not do not come from Google or Facebook. We don't come from the Bro Club. We don't come from the PayPal Mafia. We don't um, <laughs> we don't come from another fund that's established and you know where we've got a track record. The three of us are so we're not our tr- backgrounds are non traditional. So that of course being women and having non-traditional backgrounds makes it even harder. Um, Diana Murkowskaya, my partner, one of my partners, she ran an incubator program for women for three years in New York. It was very successful. 30 companies, 512 applied, 30 companies through the three period, three different programs. She did it for three years and she raised over $30 million. I think 26 or seven of them have raised subsequent rounds since and are still going strong. And she, before that was on Wall Street, she was a trader. She was an engineer. So she herself had <laughs> had her, I'm the only moments, being the only mm-hmm. woman doing what she was doing. Yeah. So she developed incredible grit and resilience. She also grew up in food lines in the Ukraine, uh, bread lines. So uh, she herself had developed incredible determination. So she... Uh, had that background. She she understands how to operate. She understands how to advise companies. She understands how to work with companies. She She's truly uh, the most numerate person I know. She loves to model, do financial models. So we have to sell that as one of our pillars, right? Diana's background. And then mm-hmm. Stephanie's background is she's an MBA from Rice. She also grew up in extremely difficult circumstances in Mississippi, and she was a lobbyist on the Hill for a while, and then she came to Houston to do her MBA, and she was asked, tapped to be the executive director of the Houston Angel Network. So she started seeing thousands of companies as well over the course of the past several years, evaluating them, doing diligence on them. And that's how she gained her experience in the startup world. I gained mine by being a lawyer and being their counsel, raising money for them, doing private placement memos, and then investing myself. Um, I actually did work for a startup for a couple of months. I took a leave of absence when I was an attorney. So, um, and then I started advising and I started working with other venture capital funds, but as an investment committee member, so looking at deals. But again, I did not come from a big fund. I wasn't breaking off from a fund. I wasn't a, a prior operator of a Google or Facebook or whatever, or a Bumble. Uh, so the three of us had to sell our backgrounds and why we could source companies uh, as well or better than anybody else, why our companies would outperform. And the data 
there speaks for itself. So we use the data. We use the data about female founders outperforming. When they get money, they, they produce twice as much revenue than their male counterparts when they do get funding. Um, the, the, the fact that, that the women that we invest in and have grit, determination, perseverance have overcome so much. Uh, we had to sell the way we work together. The fact that I'm a lawyer, Diana's uh, an engineer, Stephanie's an MBA. It was all about personal selling our, you know, personal skills and our vision. Ultimately, our first close was done around a company. And the company was called Unest, is called Unest, uh, www.unest.co, just in case people are trying to find it. It's a tremendously important company, I think. Um, it democratizes access to college savings. Uh, they started with an app that you could put on your phone in three minutes. And uh, with $25 or less, you could start a savings program. So it's for the 99 percenters that don't have wealth managers. They've blossomed into other um, other areas, you know, they do, they teach, uh, people about college savings. Now they've got a program where the parent can work with their child to decide where they want to invest, including in cryptocurrency if they want to. Uh, but anyway, so this was a company we identified, told our prospective investors and our prospective investors were all high net worth individuals at that point. They were all in our network. We had had coffee after coffee after coffee <laughs> or lunch after lunch after lunch. <laughs> and we rallied them to get a first close around this company in July of 2019 and thus begat the Artemis Fund. Mm. And so, so putting companies in as we were raising money was the only way we could have done it because people saw our thought process. They liked the companies we were identifying. They saw our diligence memo, which, which are these really long memos that describe the company, why we're investing, where are the risks about the management team. We describe, a mar we give a market analysis. I mean, it's very detailed. So that's how we did it. Yes, and I'm so impressed. Like you said, this is um, highly impactful, the success of a company like Unest. Any other success stories that you'd like to share with us, companies that you've invested in? Yes, absolutely, because all of them, I think, are filling a very important need. Um, one of the most recent companies we invested in is a company called DressX. And it's, it, we're basically investing in clothes that don't exist. And why is this important? <laughs> well, it's important because they are on a mission to reduce clothing waste, which is tr tremendously detrimental to the environment. That's number one. Uh, one in nine people buys a piece of clothing just for a picture and throws it out. Uh, so this is it's really going to, I think, dramatically change that. I hope so, at least. And they hope so, too. They're working with the UN. They're working with the MacArthur Foundation to try and really move the needle here. The other thing it does is if you are unable to buy a piece of clothes, so let's say for an interview, you want to buy a really nice suit, but you can't afford it, and you're doing your interview on Zoom anyway. Mm -hmm. This, In this case, you can spend $30, and, and at some point when they have uh, interview suits, which they're working on, you can have an interview 
you only need the top anyway on Zoom, <laughs> but you can you can have your interview and pay a lot less money. It democratizes access to people who want designer clothes for TikTok or for pictures or for whatever video game you're playing or social media app you're using. And then it also gives access to those designers that wouldn't ordinarily have access. People can design clothes now that are just digital and can make money at it. They don't have to be, you know, the top designers uh, who are already out there and well-known. So it's going to really open up the fashion industry for, for everyone, for consumers and for, um, for the designers. So that I think is exciting. So it gives, it goes to financial inclusion and sustainability. Um, Then another one called neighbor force we just invested in. It's a a company that allows, and it's neighborforce.com that provides care for seniors that comes from neighbors, basically. So you're in a community and you've got uh, people who are sitting at home who otherwise have some time on their hands and would like to just spend a couple of hours doing something and making some money and maybe even doing something that they feel good about. So the neighbors, the caregivers are largely women in their 50s, as it turns out. And they are called upon and they can decide the hours they want to do They go to stop by a, a home of a senior citizen who either wants some company or needs a meal prepared or needs some medicine, needs them to run an errand. So it's a very, very cool service. There is another service that does something like this that uses college students. And in this case, we've uh, we've regionalized it. And um, and you'll see more of that since they're, these are all early stage companies that are growing very fast. Another one of our companies is GoodFind. It's G-O-O-D-F-Y-N-D, and it's GoodFind.com. It's basically, it's a fintech platform for food trucks and match and and makes it seamless it's a payment platform it makes it easy for food trucks to connect with say office buildings or events and most food trucks are they're all small businesses they're largely owned by you know minorities and women it's really going to enhance their ability to increase their revenue and make a living so those are just some examples and they're all growing You'll hear more and more about them as they get to the next stages because many of them are doing, have done, either have done rounds at higher valuations or are doing them. Mm -hmm. We've got about two minutes left and I'm hoping you can kind of help folks find you if they have more questions, um, carry on the conversation and maybe just a taste of what you envision for the future, what's coming up. Yeah, well, folks can find me on LinkedIn. It's Leslie Goldman, the Artemis Fund. I think that's the best way to find me. And you'll see a lot of the things I post there because it will show what we're doing, what we're working on, what we're passionate about. I'm doing a lot of speaking as a, in, the, in the coming months because I really would like to move the needle for female founders and this funding problem. I don't think we can move it without making sure that limited partners, the, the people, the funders who have the money, actually hold their general partners accountable to invest in women and to look for more women because the network effect is just not being broken yet. They're still finding 
companies in their network, and, and it's mostly only 4.9% of general partners of venture capital funds are women. So the men are mostly looking in the standard networks they've always looked in. And so they're getting a lot of deal flow just from men. So anyway, so I'm hoping that's what the future holds. We want to move this needle. I would like to, uh, you know, galvanize. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, and we're not a minority. That's... <laughs> exactly. Hashtag not a special interest group. Hashtag not a carve out. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your story on Heartstock. I'm immensely inspired. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. This is Heartstock, and as usual, we shall be back next week. We'll see you then. Peace. Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org. Sorry.